0: Welcome one and all to the Cool Worlds Podcast with me, your host, David Kipping. I'm a professor of astronomy and director of the Cool Worlds Lab. Now, many of you might already know me from our popular YouTube channel called Cool Worlds, where we make episodes which do deep dives into topics in astronomy, such as our place in the universe. Is there life out there? And what is this nature of this thing called the universe? But you know, when I make those episodes, as much as I love making them and sharing this research with you, I sometimes wish I could go deeper, go slower, have more time to explore these complex ideas, as well as having the opportunity to engage with my colleagues. And so, prompted by this, as well as requests from many of you to make this this idea, I've decided to try and make a podcast, and this is the first ever episode. So hopefully you will enjoy these conversations with my colleagues. The first episode we're doing today is with Dr. Rebecca Charbonneau. She is a historian of science and especially astronomy. Dr. Charbonneau received her PhD from Cambridge University, one of my Armor Matters. And she then has been a historian of science at both the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, as well as currently at the National Radio Astronomical Observatory, the NRAO. She's currently a Jansky Fellow there, in fact. So I was really excited to sit down and get to talk to a historian about science. You know, we often think of history as. Critical to understanding the modern conflicts, wars, politics, economies, we all know that you have to look at history to learn the lessons about what to do today. But we rarely apply that same thinking to science. And of course, there is a rich history to all the scientific discoveries and scientific method that we use. So I was excited to sit down with Rebecca and dive into that. I think we have to remember that science is ultimately a human, enterprise. Science is an activity done by people. And people, we're flawed, we're not perfect. Sometimes we can be brilliant, other times egotistical. Moments we could be heavily biased and then the next inspired. And sometimes we are all of those things at once. History is perhaps the best way to clearly reveal the mistakes and moments of brilliance that we've had in the past and how to learn from them and improve science going forward. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rebecca Chappanoe. Now, you are an astro historian is that is that a good way to describe you yeah
1: that's a much more fun way of describing me than historian of science <laughs> okay. I think I'll, I think I'll stick with that Astro historian yeah okay
0: <laughs> I think because I'm in the world of astronomy, so I think of you as an astro historian and I guess that's really unusual you know, normally we we pretend we're interdisciplinary okay. so there's a big push for that here on campus many of the colleges. We want to be interdisciplinary, and you might be doing some chemistry and some astronomy, and you claim that you're interdisciplinary <laughs> at that point. But you truly are, because you're doing something humanities applied to the sciences, yeah. and that's an unusual blend. I'm kind of curious, how, how did you fall into this mishmash of these two worlds? What's, what's your origin story to get yeah. into here?
1: Yeah, I know. It's funny. Um, I was When I was meeting with the grad students um, at Columbia earlier, I was telling them how it's, it's oftentimes it's a bit like being bilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to talk to scientists and astronomers very differently than I have to talk to my own colleagues as historians. Um, and so it's, it's definitely like wandering between two worlds. Uh-huh. Um, I've spent most of my career working in scientific institutions. Um, right now I'm working at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Um, prior to that, I worked at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sometimes described my work as like being an anthropologist like living amongst the scientists, learning their ways. Um, And uh, and so it's a very unique experience. Um, I stumbled into it um, in kind of a strange way. I actually started as an astronomy major when I was an undergraduate student um, at Mount Holyoke College in Western Mass. Um, But I actually, due to a a family problem, I actually had to drop out of college for some time Mm -hmm. um, and and work uh, for a while. Um, And then when I was able to return um, to university, um i decided to stay closer to home um and i attended rollins um but rollins didn't have um an astronomy program at least not while i was there um okay. and so i ended up actually switching um career paths to become an art historian actually um i'm it's another passion of mine i love the arts okay um and i won i was quite good at it um and i won this research fellowship um to study caravaggio paintings in rome mm. um so i spent a summer living in rome on this this oh, um man. fellowship that yeah it was huh? it was, no, it was brutal that? i was like living off of gelato <laughs> and pizza um spending my day walking around various churches and, so and, sorry and you. Yeah, yeah it was rough um and, and it was around this time that i in, in italy um i found a museum called the museo galileo hmm. and um it's it was a history of astronomy museum and they had um, Galileo's original telescopes. Oh, wow. um, they actually had a preserved relic of his middle finger, um, which I kind of wish I had now. <laughs> right now,
0: yeah, that would be perfect, <laughs> given, given that, yeah, for those who can't see, who were just listening to this. Rebecca has a huge bandage on her middle <laughs> finger right now, for, thanks to a Thanksgiving accident. I think a, a
1: mandolin clean took oh, off man. part of my finger. Uh, okay. so, so, they they did the same to Galileo, um, and they have his middle finger um, in the in the museum. Did not do it the same way though? Right? Probably not. I think it happened. <laughs> fortunately for him, I think he was um, it was posthumously, um, which okay. I wish was the case. In, um, for yeah. me, um, but when I was r- walking around this museum it was my first exposure um, to um, the history of science and, and astronomical history. Mm. Um, and it was a very much a lightning bolt moment for me when I realized that um, this was a career path I could pursue, that I could combine both my passion and my, my history in and, and, and being an astronomer. Uh, and then my, my uh, contemporary path as an art historian. Um, and I went back to school so excited. I told all of my professors that I was going to become a historian of a science. Um, and uh, they, wow. they, yeah, they, they actually yeah any- well they were amazing i <laughs> had i had amazing mentors um at rollins um who were very supportive and we found kind of creative ways to allow me to do my coursework mm-hmm. um that was in a way that was history of science so for example um if I was in a class on impressionist paintings, I would do a paper on the history of chemistry in making paints in the 19th century. Um, or um, I did my senior thesis on um, Maria Merian, Marion, um, who is a 17th century um, naturalist illustrator. Um, she was the first um, privately funded voyage um, to uh, the Americas in the 17th century. Wow. Um, she lived in Suriname uh, and she painted um, all of the flora and fauna there. And those images were sent back to Europe um, where kind of armchair naturalists would study um, what was then called the New World, um, and and so I was able to kind of combine art history with history of science um, in order to get into graduate wow. school. So kudos
0: to Rollins, yeah. for giving a flexibility. I mean, that, fantastic. Yeah, school. Most schools might not be so accommodating. That's yeah. great that, that you do that. And liberal
1: arts education. I, I guess I'm
0: curious. You know, <laughs> that was your education. And now you're a you're a Jansky Fellow at NRAO, yes. and you're working there as a historian. What I mean, I know what a day in the life of an astronomer looks like. I I can't imagine what the day in the life of a historian of a science looks like. Can you talk to what is what kind of work are you doing on a regular basis?
1: So it's the dream job. It's the it's the coolest job in the world Um, because I get to do um, all of the things that an academic traditionally does, meaning I get to kind of follow my passions. Um, I get to study and research interesting problems in the history of science. Um, This this looks like um, it's, it's not too different from what an astronomer does. Um, instead, except for that, the data that I'm using is not telescope data, but it's historical records. So things like um, letters of correspondence, um, uh, old conference papers, old scientific papers, um, and it's a little bit like being a time traveling detective. Um, mm-hmm. I, I go through um, people's. It's, it's also like being a. Um, there's a lot of euphemisms here. <laughs> it's also like being um, the world's most professional snoop, um, where I, <laughs> I get to read people's old papers. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah. yeah you're
0: like a Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. I'm time. like. I'm
1: a really. Um, I'm, I'm like a gossip. Um, like a. Professional Professional gossip. Uh, I get <laughs> okay. to read yeah. people's stuff. So less
0: glamorous way of yeah, describing
1: it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and um, and so it's it's really fun, um, and I get to, to piece this together, and I and I get to uncover um, these stories um, about our, our scientific um, uh, heritage, um, and that's really fun, and and it's incredibly creative work, um, which really gratifies that side of my career. Um, but on the other hand, I also get to do really practical work um, because the history of science. Um, can also inform our contemporary practice, um, you know, in the in the current times, um, and so this has me- meant that, um, like, I get to be part of conversations about um, how do we cooperate with our peers who live in countries um, that we have hostile geopolitical relations with. I get to help inform conversations on um, what are our ethical approaches, deciding telescopes by looking at the history of how we've done this in the past. Um, so it's the best of both worlds. I get to do the creative research and I also get to feel like my work is having an, a real world impact um, where I get to help yeah. inform the scientific future um, as I tell the scientific past.
0: Yeah, I love that analogy that your your data collection, instead of telescope data, is, I guess, going to archives, digging in through old newspaper clippings I mean yeah. wh- where are you sourcing this this information from
1: it varies hugely on the problem that I'm trying to solve um, so um, NRAO has done a fantastic job in preserving their history so we actually have an archives housed in NRAO archive uh, sorry in NRAO headquarters. Um, where I actually, um, yeah, we have letters of correspondence, conference papers. um, We have schematics for telescope designs. um, And so it's a a wealth of information. Um, Mm. It's a little trickier when I want to do research on other parts of the world. Um, As you know, I do a lot of work um, on the former Soviet Union. Um, They have much less free um, and accessible (laughs) information. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. More so now than when I was doing my research there a few years ago. I actually had an opportunity to go to Moscow. Um, One of the things that I did to get around that is I can conducted what's called oral history interviews um this is essentially um where you sit down with someone and you ask them questions about their career about their life um and then you um transcribe it and then donate that to an archive and that becomes then part of the historical record and it can be a useful way for filling in the gaps um but it is imperfect um people's memory these are i'm often interviewing people who are like in their 80s their memory is imperfect so I i tend to try to um you know uh match it up with existing um, documentary evidence. Um, so for example, if I'm interviewing a former Soviet scientist and um, he or she mentions a satellite um, that was launched at a particular time, I'm not going to necessarily just take them at their word for it. What I'm going to do is I now know there was a satellite launched around this time. I can usually find a newspaper article, something to kind of verify what they're saying. Um, but sometimes that is impossible, and, I, and I'll and i note that in my work, which is to say that this is, this is what we know, um, but it isn't verified information. And that can be tricky to do when you're doing bilateral
0: histories. Um, yeah. And, and this, I mean, you've you've obviously already touched on this, but you your speciality, one of your specialities, yeah. has been Soviet era radio astronomy, but also more broadly, um, astronomy and science happening in the USSR at that time. Yes. And I guess that's also kind of a niche uh topic that many of our listeners might wonder what drew you towards, you know, we don't think of often many of the technological developments or scientific achievements in modern society is being accredited to the USSR. So what was it that, drew you towards that particular area?
1: Yeah. Um, so it's a number of things. Um, I knew I when I w- entered grad school, I knew that I wanted to do um, Cold War history. Um, my own family um, is Cuban-American mm-hmm. fled the communist revolution. I kind of grew up under this, you know, the specter of the Cold War. Um, and that really influenced my fascination in the area, as a, as a lot of historians, I think, are attracted to, to things they have a tangible experience with. Um, and I knew I wanted to do history of astronomy. So, So in the process of figuring out what exactly in the history of astronomy I wanted to focus on, I found this book um, that was uh, in the Oxford Library, uh, published um, by Josef Shklovsky, a Soviet astrophysicist, um, and Carl Sagan. Um, and, and this was published again in, in 1966. It was called Intelligent Life in the Universe. Uh, and it was a book on, on SETI, on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, and I thought it was the weirdest book in the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. stands out on the show. It, for sure. Yeah. Because yeah.
1: um, for, for people who don't know about the book, it's not, I don't believe it's in print anymore. Uh, so it's kind of hard to find a copy. Um, but it is, it was a book that was originally published in Russian um, by Yosef Shklovsky um, in 1962. Um, and Carl Sagan, when he was 28 years old, uh, wanted to, um, get a copy made, um, translated in English to publish in America. Um, and in the process of doing so, he decided to add addenda uh, for an American audience. Um, and um, even at the age of 28, <laughs> Carl had a lot to say. Yeah, uh, and I'm so, the, yeah. <laughs> so the, the book actually um, doubled in size. Um, and then, you know, he returned the the translated English-American copy to Shklovsky with, you know, suddenly twice as big and with Sagan's name on the front cover, which if you can imagine how <laughs> cheeky that is for a 28-year-old. Yeah,
0: it's a bit of audacity yeah, to, it's to, so. To the co-authorship and put yourself it's on it's so
1: cheeky the... um but it actually ended up being a real benefit um to, oh yeah, yeah to i can Sh- believe that absolutely he's such
0: a wonderful communicator anything he touches is is, is Abso- very beautiful absolutely to read.
1: Yeah. absolutely and it even helped shklovsky because shklovsky um was very limited in the perspectives that he could include in his original book because um there was a lot of censorship especially on space science publications in the 1960s in the Soviet Union and so Shklovsky later wrote about how grateful he was um, to Sagan for being able to add things that he either didn't have access to the information because of just the great number of amount of censorship um, but or because he kind of had to bite his tongue and he couldn't really Mm. fully express what he
0: his thoughts were. So what would be an example? couldn't he he expressed back then would it be something like the u.s has achieved certain technological achievements and they have to pretend those haven't occurred um, or yeah what were we talking that about that could
1: certainly that could certainly have been one of the things obviously it's impossible to speculate on what someone did not include in a book right. um, historians are limited to like what we actually have their historical record of um but i do know that um scientists at the time really had to adhere whatever they wrote about um to dialectical materialism which is a marxist philosophy mm. um so there is a lot of language kind of um um sprinkled throughout shklovsky's original text which says things on the nature of that you know capitalism will lead to the end of humanity as we know it unless we are able to establish a communist civilization and these kind of things that influence the book's trajectory shklovsky um in in a book published posthumously so after he died we got a collection of all his personal writings a lot of his personal writings um and he was highly highly critical of the soviet regime um and and this caused a lot of problems for him throughout his life he was frequently barred from traveling abroad um so he he Um, I think that Sagan working with him um, was able to turn the book into something that probably looked a little bit closer to what Shklovsky would have liked to have written. That, that's speculation, of course, but that seems to be the case given the evidence that we have.
0: And do we know anything about their relationship? Was it just letter correspondence? Did they meet? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what was his view of Sagan's contributions? Yeah. You know, how, how did that look?
1: So it's, um, so again, I, I, I'm limited to oral history testimony,
0: yeah.
1: oral history testimony, and also um, the letters that I have. We have quite a number of the letters in NRAO archives um, and, um, and also at the, the Library of Congress um, Carl Sagan um, mm. donation. Um, and yeah, um, th- for the most, for the early part of their relationship, it was mostly by correspondence. And it's quite interesting to read um, because, again, being a professional Snoop, um, you <laughs> can actually see um, that sometimes Sagan would send Shklovsky letters and Shklovsky would never receive them. And I have, you know, the copy of Sagan's letter here. And mm-hmm. then I can see Shklovsky writing back, really frustrated, saying, like, hey, how come you're ignoring my letters? Um, and I actually, when I was doing my PhD, did a little bit of research into the history of mail interference during this time, of which there was a great number, um, particularly particularly in the Soviet Union, but in the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually see how the censorship, the male interference was hindering their relationship as they were trying to correspond and work with one another across the Iron Curtain. Um, And it's, so that's quite amusing. I remember at one point um, in one letter we have, um, Shklovsky wrote a little cartoon. He was an artist, um, a little bit of a passive aggressive cartoon (laughs) um, to uh, to Carl Sagan asking like, why hasn't my book been published in America yet? Um, So you can see that frustration. Um, But they were able to form an in-person relationship um, in fact, the two of them chaired um, a joint U.S. USSR SETI conference um, in 1971, oh, wow. um, and it, it was highly successful. and um, It's an am- it's an amazing conference. I have the proceedings from it. I didn't attend. I have spoken with people who attended, and yeah. um, it was a a very foundational um, event in SETI history.
0: And was it a risk to Carl to do this to his because per- you know there was obviously kind of McCarthyism and a, oh, yeah. the the threat of being associated with communists even. Oh how, yeah. How was that something that he was at serious risk of or was, was it mostly yeah. ignored?
1: I would say it's a good question. I, I mean, there there certainly was that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time that Sh- um, Sagan was corresponding with Shklovsky, he was still pretty young, so not a, a very big target. Uh, he's 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also, um, this is the period, this is the 1962 to 66 period. Um, McCarthyism had settled down a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so it wasn't, he wasn't, you know as at risk as people like oppenheimer right yeah, um but yeah. but it certainly was risky um and and actually that's something i really admire about carl sagan is that he really um throughout his career you can see that he, that he made a great effort um to cooperate and reach out to his soviet peers even at a young age right when when it yeah. was yeah kind of risky to do so um and i think that that had an enormous benefit, um, not, not only to the history of SETI, but also just to U.S. USSR relations. Um, and I think it's also part of the reason why we're able. You mentioned that mm. we don't know a lot about Soviet contributions in this area. Um, that's because we, if I hadn't, if I didn't have access to Carl Sagan's correspondence with Shklovsky, yeah. there would be almost nothing for me to source. Yeah. And then, and that's the thing: histories that don't have evidence don't get written
0: yeah um it's they, still they, they still happen they <laughs> yeah. still happen yeah but we but right. just
1: like you know just as if just like you can't observe something that you don't have any observations of we can't write histories if we don't have the data
0: yeah yeah
1: um so Sagan did a great job helping us fill in the gap um I, I don't know if that's what he, it's probably not what that probably was not his intention at the time um but it it's been a fantastic um contribution of his
0: now I've I have a sense as to how The cultural attitudes in the U.S. have changed since Sagan's time to modern times in terms of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I have no idea what the attitudes in the USSR were like amongst the public. Yeah. Um, How they viewed this science. Was it treated? Because there's also been, you know, there's been a giggle factor associated in the U.S. for a long time. Starting... To see some of that ebb away now, yeah. um, but still, it's 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 difficult. You don't see too many faculty members in astronomy departments who who just work on SETI. It's kind of a rare breed of people that get to afford to do that. Yeah, um, I'm curious how it has evolved both here and the US, and not the academic side of it, but really the the public perception of the science over say the yeah. last fifty hundred years. How has that changed in these two continents?
1: Yeah, so in the Soviet Union, it had a really different. Um, system than in the U.S. in terms of funding. Um, So I would say that the reason that SETI thrived in the Soviet Union really was largely because of Yosef Shklovsky. Um, He was the head of the Sternberg Astronomical Institute at the University of Moscow, which was one of the big astronomy centers in that country. He was really passionate about SETI. And Mm. so he made sure SETI, students who were interested in SETI got supported, SETI projects got supported, SETI publications were okay. And because the... So it's like
0: an autocracy almost Yeah, in a sense. yeah, Yeah, because
1: the funding was centralized. So Sternberg would kind of get the same amount of funding regardless um and and then and shklovsky yeah had a big sway over what happened with that funding Mm. whereas that's as you know is not the case in the united states in Mm -hmm. fact um, frank drake later wrote in his autobiography how he was um, envious of his soviet colleagues for this exact (laughs) reason that he 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 felt like he had to persuade um the public the government um where they had to do less of that in the soviet union of course the flip side of that is that the u.s had much more money and technology to be able to pursue ambitious projects that the soviet union didn't so it's a double-edged sword um but and, even
0: so how did the how did the everyday yeah. you know russian or soviet think of yeah think of that were they even was it was even in their conception to yeah. think of this or was it just too too detached
1: so it's a good question it's hard to gauge what public perception in the past was um since i'm not talking to the average person about their person mm. like i'm not talking to the average 80 year old person when i do oral histories i'm doing astronomers or history interviews. However, we can kind of glean what the interest was by looking at publications because, of course, magazines, newspapers are going to publish what they believe the public Mm -hmm. is interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot of really highly speculative publications in the Soviet Union at this time. Um, In the late 1950s, for example, um, there was a um, a famous magazine called Technology for Youths. That's the Mm -hmm. English version of the name. (laughs) I'm going to spare your podcast listeners, my (laughs) my horrible Russian. Um, And Shklovsky published a paper in there um, in which he speculated that phobos you know the moon, yeah, of, of, the moon of mars, mars yeah. yeah um because of its strange orbit that we now know is due to it being oddly shaped and porous Um, Mm. He believed that it was because it was hollow, which Mm. is actually, you know, kind of a, a yeah, it's not a bad idea. Um, And so because he thought it was hollow, he thought it might be an artificial satellite and and evidence that our, um, you know, civilization had been visited. It's kind
0: of like a Martian canals type situation. Yeah, a little bit, a
1: little bit. And and that was published in a popular magazine, right? And Mm. so I think that shows, um, I think Soviet and American attitudes um, during the space race were probably pretty parallel just because both countries had space races that were fostering that public imagination about space mm. um and then also both countries had um you know a kind of a, a long history of science fiction both the us and the ussr have strong traditions um so i think that supported public interest um i think in many ways the bigger resistance came from the scientific community um you have to realize that in the 1960s when seti got started mm. um even planetary science and was considered ridiculous yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, yeah, it was considered yeah. very far-fetched yeah. um and so it, it really i think more resistance um comes from the professional sphere than the public sphere
0: So in in the academic domain, um, obviously, we've seen a a transit. I mean, it's kind of obviously sad this year we saw Frank Drake sadly pass away. And to me, his passing uh, is somewhat symptomatic of a transition that we have seen from the old vanguard of conventional SETI, which was so deeply rooted in radio work, um, to now, we know, we use this phrase techno signatures and trying to broaden the search out like a modern version of the same search. but um distinct in its own way yeah. so how has you know that's in the US i suppose but have how has that cultural academic perception changed um yeah. have have you Notice that when you study history, the attitudes are evolving, and, and oh, yeah. if so, hopefully in a positive way.
1: The, the It's really interesting stu- studying the terminology shift that's happened for SETI over decades. Because mm. um, actually, if you look at the 1960s and 70s, the term is still SETI, but it's not SETI with an S. It's SETI with a C, so C-E-T-I. Communication?
0: Yes. The okay. emphasis
1: in the 60s and 70s was communication with extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm. I think what happened so like was- like a two-way
0: Dialogue. Yes, yes, okay. and Interesting. I,
1: it's very fascinating um, because um, I, I particularly enjoy this as a scholar who studies interactions between the Soviet Union and the US. You have these two groups of scientists on either side of the Iron Curtain who don't speak the same language. They have all of these barriers to communication, and they're coming together to try to focus on the problem of how do we communicate with with those who are alien to us, yeah. right? And, it, mm. and in some ways, they're dealing with that exact problem right. here on Earth, um, which is so fascinating. Unfortunately, I think some of the realization came about that actually this is so difficult, even on earth that maybe we should first start with the search and just uh, before we can think about the bigger problem of communication Mm -hmm. um and so then it ended up changing around the early 1970s um i've been told by oral history testimony um that it happened um by a conversation between frank drake carl sagan and ken kellerman um at this 1971 conference um and it changed to seti with an s Uh, and then you're right it's now transformed again to become techno signature research that's not a coincidence. Talked to Jill Tarter about this, um, and she credits the change, of course, to the rise of the legitimacy, the legitimacy and the um, you know uh, growing of exoplanetary science. Yeah, um, it became kind of a, a companion so it's, to
0: it's my. It's my right. Credit, yeah, really is yeah, what you're saying. It, it is. Yeah. It really is. It, it <laughs> is
1: it, it, because of biosignatures, technosignatures made sense. We were able to um, ca- kind of capitalize on that growing field. Um, and uh, but interestingly, now there's actually a little bit of pushback against that. Um, hmm. Jason Wright. Um, hopefully he doesn't mind me calling him out here. <laughs> um, has has argued that actually we should stick with SETI with an S um, because he thinks that technosignature research is too narrow and that a lot of what people in the SETI community are doing are thinking really expansively about um, problems like what is the nature of intelligence um, about issues like communication and technosignature research is too specific uh, and SETI better encompasses the really interdisciplinary nature of the field. So, yeah. um, so we might see another transition. I don't know. Yeah, I
0: mean they are they are distinct. If you if you're yeah looking for technology that is presumably a product of intelligence but intelligence doesn't necessarily create lead to, to technology Absolutely. there's all sorts of intelligences in our own planet that Absolutely. don't produce any kind of technosignature in that sense yeah. and of course there's been a huge thing we could dive into is just what is what even is intelligence what are we actually searching for yeah. here and I, it, has that evolved the idea oh of you know h- historically have we have we been changing that that definition yeah. over time. Oh yeah,
1: I mean, intelligence history is its own field, mm. um, and a ton has been written about it by historians of science. Um, it's it's an incredibly fraught topic actually Um, because a lot of um our early scientific studies of intelligence that happened like in the 19th century were really entrenched in eugenics in the history of scientific racism right Mm -hmm. the way that we perceive um ranking hierarchizing um forms of intelligence and how that has often meant um yeah denigrating our fellow human beings as Mm -hmm. less than human oftentimes Mm -hmm. um and it's that's a problem that study runs into sometimes because um all of our conceptions of intelligence are rooted in this you know, history of science. Um, and so that, of course, is going to affect the way that we think about it moving forward. Um, and of course, most study scientists are kind, wonderful people who want to avoid these pitfalls. Um, but it's so entrenched in the way that we talk about intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in the history of the field, that it's quite a minefield to navigate. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why the interdisciplinary nature of the field is so critical, because um, no person can be an expert in all things. And um yeah
0: that, that's hard and i know we've been we've we've also discussed that that's just our own humanist perspective but there's yeah. also the you know, the animal def- oh, sure. animal intelligences such as uh you know is an, is a colony of ants have what level of intelligence that have right. or bees things like this and yeah. it's it's definitely a problem we're grappling with i think that's one of the reasons why i've always understood the criticism of traditional seti yeah. that you're looking for intelligence but um, an absent is Carl Sagan's famous saying absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Whereas yeah. I think if we can search for specific technosignatures, like a climate change on an yeah. exoplanet yeah. or, um, a satellite system, artificial satellite, like a Starlink system, yeah. at least then we could put a robust upper limit. But. What can we really say about, is there any hope of really putting limits on intelligence?
1: That's one thing I've seen, a major shift in just the way that SETI scientists talk about what they're doing, which I think is really excellent and, and far more responsible, where um, kind of in the 60s and 70s, you have a lot of postulations on what's the nature of civilization, what's the nature of intelligence, whereas today it's a lot more practical, which, which is to say, I, I've, I've heard scientists say, well, okay, maybe Dyson spheres are not inevitable, um, maybe it's not an inevitable part of civilizations. But if even one exists, it's going to be a lot easier to find than a sustainable local um, civilization, and yeah. I think that that switch to um, practicality versus universalizing um, is is a, a really positive scientific step that study has taken over the last few decades.
0: Yeah, I mean the Dyson, just for those who aren't familiar, the Dyson sphere is this idea of this this shell or this swarm of artificial satellites which are built around a star to essentially harvest all the energy. Um, and it's obviously a pretty extreme version of technology. Yeah. One, and, and it kind of reminds me of this discussion I've been thinking a lot about recently with my colleagues about sustainability and the future of energy growth and usage on our planet. And in a way, the things that we are most easily able to detect are the civilizations which are in the greatest imbalance with their own planet. Absolutely. Right? So those, if you start a nuclear war tomorrow, That's kind of ideal for us because it will give us a nice big signature to detect. It won't last very long, but it's the brightest that that civilization could possibly be. Whereas a civilization which is in maybe perfect, sustainable harmony with its planet would produce very little for us to pick up on. And so are we doomed then to only pick up on, on the, the worst yeah, civilizations in the galaxy. It's funny you
1: mentioned actually in, in that 1971 conference between the US and USSR, one of the scientists in attendance actually um, uh, posited the idea that the US and USSR um, Kind of lump all of their nuclear bombs together and um, at a considerable distance from Earth, blow them all up as kind of like a welcome message, as an alert message yeah. for SETI, it right? Two birds <laughs> of one right, stone yeah. as well. It gets rid of a load
0: of yeah. dangerous weaponry. Yeah, yeah. and
1: um, of course one wonders how how to, uh, how an alien civilization might interpret a welcome message that is a bunch of nuclear bombs going mm, off. But <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that's a good point. I yeah. mean, there's always that problem. There. I mean, if we send out a directed communication, saying, hi, we're super friendly. We sent the Arecibo message, which I got on my T-shirt today. (laughs) I mean, to us, this is just a nice picture of a little guy, a little stick man. Mm -hmm. But to them, that might be their symbol of fascism or right. something right and they would be like well, why are they sending us right. this symbol and i guess um that's always a risk with whatever you do in right. attempting communication i
1: think that's why there was that shift away from communication i mean carl sagan even realized it himself in you know in the movie contact that he wrote the script for and, and the book um you know what's the first signal that the alien civilization receives and sends back it's um hitler at the 1938 right. olympics yeah. right yeah. um and so there's this this wreck i love that scene i know it's, it's such so a good great. movie yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah um and yeah so there's like this i think there's this um, reckoning in the SETI community that they realize that um, that communication is going to be incredibly fraught, um, and which is why there's been a little bit of a shift away from it.
0: Yeah, and and, and in all of the, in all of our efforts of communication, of course, it's true the receiver message, um, particularly true of things like the Golden Record. Yeah. There's a reflection of our own values, our own. It's almost if you you know you can take the receiver message in previous attempts, time beacons. As another source for your yeah. for your study, Absolutely. right? And so, um, to what extent are you interested in SETI as I'm I'm curious for you personally, yeah. are you more interested in SETI for the for the because you are really interested in the search for alien intelligence, or is it more interesting because it's actually a reflection of us? It's telling us something deeper oh, yeah. about the human experience than it is about. Anything to do with alien life?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely the latter. Um, Jill Tartar, when she talks about um, some of the important reasons to support SETI, is she, she talks about the cosmic mirror, the idea that SETI is a mirror that that inevitably kind of shows some in- human introspection on our own world and society. Um, and in studying especially Cold War SETI, the interactions between the Soviet Union and the US, this is so incredibly true. Um, one of the examples I love to give about this um, is that uh, a lot of SETI scientists were involved in anti nu protests mm-hmm. um Carl Sagan famously wrote the um, nuclear winter paper yeah. right um where he warned about earth becoming inhospitable if we had nuclear war um Yosef Shklovsky wrote letters to support um the uh, disarmament activist Andrei Sakharov um uh, people like Philip Morrison who actually um mm-hmm. was responsible for dropping um h- helping to drop the the first uh, atomic bomb over Nagasaki mm-hmm. um he later became a staunch anti-nuclear activist but also wrote one of the first ever SETI publications in 1959. Yeah yeah. Yeah, and then later led a a lot of uh, NASA SETI workshops and I don't think it's a coincidence that you have people who are you know for some of the first times in human history really wrestling with the idea of um, how do we seek out and communicate with life on other worlds how do we represent our own world and they're looking around at the Cold War period and thinking yikes (laughs) (laughs) right yeah Um, this is why Drake had L at the end of his equation the longevity (laughs) of civilizations because for the first Keep time concerned. yeah it wasn't just about the end of rome or about the mm-hmm. end of the united states it was about the end of everybody um and i and i think because of that um seti uh really prompted introspection um for those scientists practicing it and it teaches us so much um about our own um not only about our own world but our perceptions of our world
0: yeah and whilst that's a strength for you for someone interested in the history and the humanities and, yeah. the, and the mirror aspect in another sense it might be a, a weakness or a frustration oh, yeah. for astronomers because then You know, in that, in just what you said there, the Drake equation had the L because I'm sure it was prescient in in Drake's mind at the time about the risk of annihilation. Mm -hmm. Would the Drake equation have looked different had he written it 50 years ago or 50 years in the future? And so, could maybe all the methods we're using, I mean, uh, we talked about Martian canals earlier, it's a good example. Percival Lowell was looking for canals on another planet, which we would think. But that's a very strange signature to, yeah, to go out and else? look for. But that's just a product of his time. And so is, is that true of all the efforts we're doing right now? We know we're looking for Starlinks. <laughs> yeah. And they're gonna right, who builds Starlinks? Like, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a very primitive thing for a civilization to yeah. do.
1: Yeah, it, it's one of those things where it's, it is a little bit, um, it's, I guess it would be depressing if you're a study scientist. As a historian, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, which is that, scientists have a really hard time getting out of their own perspective, even when they try to. Um, I think I talk about um, uh, Carl Sagan's um, work a lot because I think he's a great example of this. Um, but even in um, like the Voyager golden record, mm-hmm. when they were trying to be um, as inclusive and universal as possible, they still kind of ended up reproducing norms about their world. Um, Carl Sagan has a great quote. He, um, he wrote about his experience in, um, creating the golden record in a book called uh, Murmurs of the Earth. Um, and he talks about how he had an idea um, to go to the United Nations and um, record um, a greeting from every one of the delegates in their um, native language. Um, and as he's doing this, he realizes that all of the speakers are men yeah. because only men were the delegates at that time because yeah. it was a patriarchal society. Right. Um, and and so he was reproducing kind of his point in time, his culture, in this message that he was striving to be truly human and universal. Um, and so even when we're making our best effort, we seem to be stuck um, in our um, our own cultural framework. Yeah. Um, and so that can be disheartening. But I think a positive spin on that is, um, and this is going to be a plug for my entire field, <laughs> um, which is read history. Mm. Um, because I think that um, unlike in other fields of science where you want to blind yourself, right, like a blind study, yeah. um, I think- for SETI to combat bias, it needs not to be blind, but actually to look really hard at your cultural framework, at your history, and then recognize it when it comes up in yeah. your ideas. And so, I think it's that's one of the key ways um, to fight that situational
0: that's bias. That's really good advice. I, I I I will take that on as well. I mean, we've it's certainly something I think I think a lot about the story of Percival of Lowell a lot yeah. with the Martian canals. Um, and the other, the other aspect of not necessarily history, but to some degree history of humanities is is just our own biases and yeah. it you can be a product of the time but you can also be a product of your own ego and your own oh, sure. desire to be remembered which kind of you know leads me into this we talk about sagan a lot i mean sagan is remembered as kind of a hero of science you know it will we, we talk about a lot on my youtube channel all the time because i'm such a big fan of his writing yeah. his show cosmos of course influenced a whole generation of astronomers um, and so we have things like the NASA Carl Sagan Fellowship, named in his honor, and maybe yeah. we'll have a Carl Sagan Observatory in the future. And you know, naming things is something we've been doing for a long time for many people. Sure. But we're right in the midst, right right now, in astronomy of right. a huge controversy with the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a petition now signed by over, I think, almost 1,700, maybe 2,000 hmm. astronomers yeah. who are advocating this name should be changed. Hmm. And so this is not uncommon many many famous scientists or notable people outside of science even or even in art yeah. they're imperfect people oh sure and when we re- look at their lives uh, in reflection of modern standards we can identify these flaws and so it raises the question some said well, maybe we should just stop naming things after people altogether yeah. and others would say well that's a part of the almost the public education of history you know yeah. so so how how should we remember great scientists yeah. should we be doing this naming thing or or how do you feel about
1: this? Yeah, it? No, I mean, it's really complicated. There's no, um, I'm not here to give you the right answer, mm. um, but I can give you my informed perspective, um, which is, um, yeah, I mean, so as a historian, when I am, I research, uh, you know, radio astronomers in the 1960s and 70s. Um, as you can imagine, for the most part, these are not feminists, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so as a woman, sometimes I read things that make me feel uncomfortable, right? Um, but it's my job as a historian um, to kind of fight against presentism and present this history um, in a way that I still think brings value um, without, you know, casting too much harsh judgment on these figures on the other hand i don't believe that names um like naming of things is history um i think that that's more like a monument um so right now i work at the national radio astronomy observatory that's in charlottesville virginia Mm -hmm. Uh, so we uh, um (laughs) we have a lot of thoughts on on monuments um yeah and i and i think that i think that the james webb space telescope um is in many ways a monument right that's why we name things we we, Mm -hmm. it's hero worship um which is something humans have been doing forever right we we like having heroes carlson is my hero. It's also my job as a historian to responsibly, um, you know, uh, write his history. And so I, that doesn't mean I'm not going to ever be critical. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm certainly very critical mm. of study scientists and their ideas at points. Um, and I think um, the right thing to do is um, to recognize that the way that we, um, as communities, renegotiate our values over time should be reflected in our communal heritage, right? And that's what monuments and names are, right? It's a, comu- it's a community, right? The the astronomy community decides who they want to honor um, and and who they want, um, who they respect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, our cultural values are going to shift and change over time. um, And I think that means that it's okay then um, to rename things. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, And I don't think it's erasing history. Um, I remember when the Charlottesville Monument debates were happening, a lot of people thought that I as a historian would be opposed um, to getting rid of um, the statue because it's erasing history. Mm. Um, A statue is not history. Um, And and being on a public square is not a museum. Um, It's devoid of context. Mm. And I think that that's the really key part. Um, I have seen other countries take different approaches to um, their history that they are not proud of. Um, uh, For example, even when I was in Moscow, um, there are statues of um, Stalin that were toppled over After the fall of the Soviet Union, Um, and rather than placing him on street corners, valorizing him without context, um, they have put them um, in a garden in front of their modern art museum in in what's called the I think it's called the Garden of Fallen Heroes, something like that in in English. Um, And because you can't
0: ignore the the influence that that person had, absolutely.
1: Um, And now I don't think that that's a perfect example because even that garden, I think it could use some more context. (laughs) Um, The the relationship with Russia and Stalin is a little bit complicated, Um, but I am not opposed to the idea of. Having these things in museums where you can have the context right but a public square is not a museum it's not Mm -hmm. a place where history education happens Um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there are often insidious reasons for putting up statues or names for example like we know that a lot of the confederate statues were put up in the period of between uh, 1900 and 1920 when mm. a lot of jim crow laws were being mm. enacted it was very mm. much trying to re-, a re creative revisionist history of the us right. um one that was white supremacist in nature um and so yeah i think that um when we're talking about naming telescopes it shouldn't be a conversation about um hero worship and forgiving people in the past it should be a conversation about what does our community value and this and recognize it as a monument in your community which is yeah. essentially what it is
0: yeah I, I can see that i mean one one thing i definitely have a strong feeling about or opinion about is naming discoveries after either yourself or someone you love yeah i've seen that happen with exoplanets when sure. someone has named a planet and i guess the, the problem there is you lose objectivity yeah. so it's a slightly different case but um you're you it's very difficult if you name something after your wife or your child. Sure. Uh, my daughter Rosie always wants me to name the next planet I find <laughs> after her. I, I, I can't because if I do that, how am I supposed to look you in the eye and say, oh, you know that planet I discovered after you? <laughs> Turns out it's not there. Turns oh, out it's 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 a fake planet. Right. Or and it's some... fa- it's famous for being a fake. So you're you you can't um, you can't proceed objectively as a scientist, which is that right. job. So I I try to be very conscious of that aspect of it. Um, but obviously, with with JWST, I mean, a lot of us are now trying to avoid actually saying James Webb and yeah. just call it JWST, and we're maybe even calling yeah. it the Just Wonderful Space Telescope or something <laughs> in, in corridors, trying to come up with the yeah. names. And it, it it looks like you know, with the rate decision, it's not going to go away. So we're going to have yeah. to figure out how to get through this. Yeah,
1: I think it's unfortunate. Um, I think when so the NASA History Office did do a report. Um, on James Webb as a historical figure, and I think it's interesting because the the question that the historians um, were looking at um, were was not the question of whether or not they should um, whether or not a person is responsible um, for uh, you know all the ills of the past, mm. but they were looking at is there evidence that James Webb was an active participant in the Lavender Scare, which is a different kind of question, right? Because we were talking earlier about the historical record, historians can't do the work if the data is not there. Yeah. And like Carl Sagan said the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. Um and so it's it's a different question to say um does this name reflect our community values? Is there a community consensus on this person that we want to honor? Yeah. Um the question was not that. The question was instead is there evidence, is there historical evidence? And that's what they were in charge of of looking at. Um so that's a that's a really different approach.
0: Right. And it makes me wonder I mean you're a historian, so you think about the past, mm-hmm. but you're also living in the present. I am. And so, <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> sure. And so I'm kind of curious, do you have particular insight into how history will remember now? Especially, let's say, in terms of SETI in particular, yeah. it's it's some things have changed, right? Some, sure. our uh, our attitudes towards SETI have changed, the way we're funding SETI has changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is is there something happening right now that maybe we're sleeping and we're not aware of that historians will look back yeah. and maybe in your opinion think this was an important transition that's happening in this current era
1: yeah you mean in SETI specifically
0: uh, well, or even broader? because there's than that, like but some that's... stuff
1: happening that historians are probably gonna be interested in right now like uh war With... in ukraine and...
0: <laughs> I, okay i mean i mean let's at least keep it this COVID <laughs> thing. Uh... of course it's... <laughs> Also, the world is falling apart around us. Yeah, this, so like I there's imagine... some stuff
1: that historians might be interested in.
0: <laughs> Good point. Uh, I mean, in terms of are there, are there things happening yeah. in in our search for let's just say life in the universe sure. to keep it yeah. narrow but broader than just SETI yeah. alone. So. Uh-
1: I'll preface by saying that what you have asked me is like the most taboo thing that you can ask a historian. We are not <laughs> supposed to do that. We are not supposed to extrapolate and be, that's, we have a, a slur in our community called presentism, um, which is, okay. uh, so, so I'm not, I'm not meant to do this, yeah.
0: um,
1: but for the sake of the podcast, um, I'll, I'll try to answer politely. Um, I think that um, really just the, the, the dawn of the exoplanetary science era with all the new telescopes we have, um, I think that that's a, a major shift in astronomy. Mm. Um, And I think that if I was a historian 50, 100 years from now, I would be very fascinated in how that changes the character of astronomy. Um, And so for me, that's what I would want to look at. If I was in 50 years, a student at Oxford looking at at books in the library, I would would probably want to look at exoplanetary science.
0: I mean, just to maybe go a little bit more now, the the funding example might be a good one to pick on because we've seen, we have seen something shift there. Right, So Uh you go way back to ancient Greek yeah. times and you know patronage of scientists and artists was a common way oh, yeah. of funding oh, yeah, these yeah. kind of endeavors. And then we switched. Oh, uh, gradually it has gone back and forth. But mm-hmm. uh, we think about the era of Frank Drake and oh, SETI. Sure. And it was a federally funded project, and yes. now it seems like we're we're cycling back the other way. So yeah. is this? Do you see that that cycling of now we have billionaires funding oh, yeah. SETI programs and space research? Aww. Is this is this a cycle or is this? you see this as more of a trend
1: yeah so i wouldn't say it's a cycle um because we we society doesn't work like that um but and we can't predict what it's going to be in the future um but i will say that um throughout human history um really really wealthy people um like to leave their mark um you're right that in art so i this i can tap into my art historical past here um what that looked like in the past is you would have the kind of the wealthy elite would you know um commission artists to um you know uh, there'd be um paintings where a person would have a portrait done with many of the trappings of their wealth, like they'd be wearing their, you know, nicest coat, Mm -hmm. they'd have um, big bowls of fruit, which of ripe fruit, which was very difficult to come (laughs) by. And this was a way of kind of signaling their elite status. Um, And I think that I think it's pretty evident if you look at the kind of the elite of our contemporary world. Um, people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, um, Richard Branson, um, Yuri Milner, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. These, these people, what are they investing in? They're investing in space exploration, in SETI, in, in big space projects. Or
0: even monuments oh, to, and, to a yeah. certain degree. Yeah, right. Uh, phrase, the yeah. Tesla
1: Roadster is in some ways a monument to yeah. Elon Musk, is mm-hmm. it not? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Uh, and so I think that that's interesting to look at. Um, and yeah, for sure. If I I mean, I, I might not even wait for history to pass much longer. I might. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might you definitely dumb- I might <laughs> do like a very near uh, a, cl- a nearsighted history <laughs> on the on the the shift in funding in, in SETI and in the space sciences because I think that's very very interesting and for sure people will be paying close attention to that.
0: I know that I guess we're kind of wrapping up in time, but one thing I really it's a big question, so I'm I'm not sure how I would answer this, but I wanted to throw it to you, as someone who thinks about um, the human interaction with with science hmm. and especially the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Why are we searching? Like, fundamentally, why is that? We often, you know, we understand scientifically why we answer lots of questions. So if we're trying to understand why the Big Bang happened or where did galaxies come from, when did the first stars form? Those are teaching us about how the universe works at a very fundamental level. One might criticize, I'm definitely in, in the camp that I love looking for life, but one might criticize that, you know, looking for life, it's just another form of chemistry chemistry happens all over the earth all over the universe yeah. the only um uniqueness about this chemistry is that we happen to be this type of chemistry and so it's almost egotistical to go through the list of grand scientific questions yeah. and say the greatest question in the universe which you know some people would say this the greatest question is are we alone yeah. the greatest question is whether this particular type of chemistry of, you know, one capable of Darwinian evolution, however you want to define life, recurs elsewhere. Yeah. And is, is it an egotistical question? And it, or is this something that's fundamental to the human condition that it's something that we are, we have been asking this question since as long as we've been asking questions.
1: Yeah. So it, I think absolutely the latter. Um, I don't think it's egotistical at all. I think it's very human. Um, you and I were discussing this a little bit earlier, but I mm-hmm. think that, um, it, we are a social species. We we seek connection with each other. Um, We we oftentimes seek connection with other worlds. I mean, uh, there there is world history, global history for a reason. We don't stay inside our isolated little cultures. We we like to interact with one another. We've been doing this throughout our whole history. We ex, we have expanded across the world. Yeah. Um, You know, first the Bering Strait, then colonialism. I mean, this is something that humans have been doing for a long, long time. Um, and I think it's it's just it's just kind of in our DNA. I think that so we want to find friends we want to find people to we're trade just with. We want to yeah, we're lonely. We it, it's it's part it's what we do. We're so, we're very social. If a non-social species had evolved intelligence and technology, perhaps they wouldn't be interested in this what we consider the most important question. It's not the most important question, it's the most important question to us. Hmm. Um and I think that um yeah, no, and I and and I it, there's evidence that we have been thinking about this for millennia. Um Steve Dick, a uh, historian of science, formerly the chief historian at NASA, has written about this that even in ancient Greece um, Um, the early atomists were thinking about the plurality of worlds. And, um, you know, there are dozens of examples throughout our history where we're, we're looking up at the sky and wondering, is that another world out there? Other people just like me, Mm. are they different? How might they be different? Um, we're very curious about the other. Um,
0: it's just a product of the fact we are individuals, part of a species rather than let's say, you can imagine a, a species, a hypothetical end species, that was just like a, a fungus almost that yeah. that took over the entire planet. And there were no individuals. It was right. just a single yeah. globular thing. Yeah. And for it, the sense of being lonely wouldn't really make any sense.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Right? So maybe we ne- we're never going to hear from that. Probably We don't have not. to worry about it too much. <laughs> what do
1: we want to? Um,
0: <laughs> let's just finish because I know you're working on a book. So I just want to give you a chance to mention, it. I know sure. you're, you're working on a book, but you're, you're struggling right, yeah. to work on a book because of your injury, <laughs> but maybe just finish off telling us what you're working on right now.
1: Yeah, so I am working on a book. Um, I'm hoping it, it will come out um, sometime in the next year, but I have uh, had a little bit of a hiccup with my <laughs> hands injury. I'm not sure how to type now, um, but I, I, it's going to be on the history of the early SETI community, um, particularly in the formation of the relationships between SETI scientists in the US and USSR. Um, and it's a grand story about communicating with the the other and what that looks like and what that has looked like throughout human history um how how do we communicate with people or beings that are very different from us and what does that look like um has that sometimes meant american to soviet has that sometimes meant um humanist to um stem field um and looking at all of these interdisciplinary um you know, intercontinental and interplanetary uh, attempts at conversation yeah. in the 1960s and 70s
0: i love that i love the fact that we have in a way attempted alien communication and it's across the Iron Curtain. And that that is in a way- It's just too good not to write about it, right? (laughs) Yeah, I love that. So uh, let me thank you again, Dr. Rebecca Charbonneau. Thank you for joining us. Look out for the book. And uh, thanks again. This was a fascinating conversation.
1: Thanks so much, David. Glad to be on. Mm -hmm.
0: So that was our conversation. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, and of course, you can look out right here on the CoolWords podcast for more conversations in the near future. We have a lot already pre-recorded and many more to come in the near future. I just want to finish by saying that if you want to support this podcast, the research team at the CoolWords Lab, and our work more generally in terms of science communication then be sure to head over to coolworldslab.com support that's coolworldslab.com support thank you so much for your time and i'll see you around in the next podcast